gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm Springhill Jack, and I'm your host. We're going to be diving back in headfirst once again with Jim Jones and the People's Temple. But first and foremost, I want to thank everyone for tuning back in. I want to welcome all new listeners and say, uh, hope you like it and welcome you on board. I've gotten some very, very nice messages on Instagram, and I appreciate all the support that I've gotten because it has been very supportive and it's it means a lot to me, so thank you very much for reaching out. I genuinely appreciate it. So, if you remember, just a quick recap. Last time we uh, were speaking about Jim Jones, it was the summer of 1952. He had just been hired as a student pastor for Somerset Methodist Church, and uh, he was married to Marceline, the woman that he met that was a nurse at his hospital that he worked at when he was a teenager. So, on March 15th, 1953, Richmond's daily newspaper included a lengthy story concerning a local boy made good. They gushed about the accomplishments of a 21-year-old student pastor at Somerset Methodist Church in Indiana. The young minister, respectfully identified as the Honorable Reverend Mr. Jones, recently launched a campaign to build a recreation center for poor children on Indianapolis, Indianapolis's south side. The proposed center was dazzling, a building that cost $20,000 and, which will include a basketball court, table tennis facilities, volleyball, and kitchen equipment. But even more amazing was that the center will be run by a board of directors composed of all interested neighborhood denominations. The Reverend Mr. Jones has established a church program at Somerset almost unheard of under the strict rules or doctrine followed by most of these religious sects. In this program, Jones preaches no doctrine, but simply points out moral lessons that he's taken straight from the Bible. The article noted that the Reverend Mr. Jones, an honors graduate of Richmond High, currently attended Indiana University and was also taking a correspondence course to obtain a standing in the Methodist Conference. The article speculated about where he would accept his parish, and the article also said that he the author hopes he will continue his program uh, helping those in the church and those who actually need it. But at the same time that this article came out that was praising old Jim and his promising Methodist future, it was, uh, it was falling apart. And within a year, he would completely abandon being a Methodist altogether. To Jim Jones, his new position at Somerset Methodist was only an opportunity to lead the congregation aggressively forward with the new attitude of setting aside sectarian divisions and joining forces with anyone equally devoted to helping the unfortunate, the poor and the downtrodden beaten down, which in Indiana happened to be the African-American population, which I'm going to say it again. He, when he was sober and right when he was young, he wasn't doing bad shit. He was genuinely well-intentioned, which makes it that much worse. Jones was a student pastor and he was there to assist full-time ministers. Boat rocking was not necessarily permitted, so he did not last long. Jones could talk all he liked about his uh, theoretical community centers for neighborhood children, but there's no record beyond that article and the mention of such a project that it ever existed beyond Jones and his mother's own imagination. Jones was only volunteer help, not a part of Somerset's official church staff. I bet money he wrote that fucking article himself. He had no authority beyond whatever responsibility somebody else gave him, and there were... These were limited to helping out as required with the day-to-day church business and only delivering the occasional sermon, which always had to be proofread 
by a real Somerset minister. It's a bit different than how he's portrayed, right? In Jones's view, the services were frustrating at best. There was always a strict order of worship with everything decided in advance and conducted within a rigid time frame so worshipers could enjoy a Sunday afternoon at home. If you remember that he also was a big fan of the theatrics of Baptist Church as well as the uh, Pentecostal fuckers. It was the opposite of spontaneous and joyful and the open-ended worship that he got, he'd grown accustomed to and come to love, really, in the African-American churches, like I said. And away from Somerset, there were more problems. Despite his claim to the reporter from Richmond, Jones was no longer attending college. Even with Marceline working full-time, more income was going to be needed, and the student pastor position was a volunteer job. Jones worked a number of odd jobs, mostly in factories and shops, but it was not easy to make ends meet. And in August of 52, Jones was badly shaken by what he considered to be a personal betrayal. Ronnie Baldwin, the kid that they were, like, boarding, had lived with the Joneses for more than a year. Jones and Marceline doted on the little shit and believed their affection was returned in equal measure. They made plans to formally adopt him, but didn't consult him until after they had legal documents drawn up and ready for him to accept and for his mother to sign. But... Grateful as he was for the kindness they'd shown him, Ronnie would not sign it. He still wanted, at some point, to be re reunited with his mother and his brothers. Hurt Marceline's feelings, but uh, as you can imagine, old Jimbo was outraged. He ranted at Ronnie literally for an entire night, warning him that his birth mother was an unrepentant whore. Ronnie would immediately regret giving up the love and security that he and Marceline provided. However, boy stood his ground. boy. And Jones seemed to believe that once he did uh, anything for somebody, from that moment forward, the person belonged to him. With no right to disagree about anything or ever leave. And while Marceline closed herself in another room, uh, Jones harangued the little boy until dawn, and then petulantly sent the youngster back to his mother in Richmond. Man... Ronnie thought that that was the end of it, and his mother was doing better, and enrolled her son in a local elementary school. Elementary school. Unbelievable. Soon afterwards, Ronnie was summoned from class to the principal's office because there was an urgent phone call for him. It was the Joneses, calling from Indianapolis to tell Ronnie that his desertion had broken Marceline's heart. Hadn't she and Jim treated him wonderfully, caring for him when nobody else in the world did? And now, would Ronnie come back and let them adopt him? Ronnie said no. At the end of September, the Baldwins held a family get-together in Richmond, and when Ronnie arrived, Jim and Marceline were already there. As soon as Ronnie saw Jones, he turned and ran the other way, certain that Jim would never leave him alone. As Ronnie recalls it, I took off. He jumped in his car. He chased me through the west side of Richmond. I went through homes and houses and yards and everything, and Jim cornered Ronnie eventually outside of the boy's house. But Ronnie's older brother, Dean, confronted him, telling him to go away and leave Ronnie the fuck alone. From that moment, Jones never had anything to do with Ronnie ever again. Perhaps it was a reflex, uh, or just force of habit. Jones and Marceline turned immediately to another child, and that was an 11-year-old sickly-looking thing that they met during Jones's student ministry. Her background is mostly a mystery, but within months of losing Ronnie, the Joneses formally adopted this little girl, whom they named... Agnes. Jones's energy and ambition could not be contained within his student pastorship. He was very limited to what he could do, like I said. He needed some additional outlets. 
and he found it in the region's evangelical circuit. Remember the revival circuits? And as a boy in Lynn, Jones often attended revivals where preachers espoused their personal faith. Many preachers didn't have an affiliation with a specific church per se, like they weren't necessarily Methodists, they weren't Catholics, they weren't Pentecostals, they just felt called to witness to the Word of God as they understood it. Uh, revivals is what they call them, prayer meetings, uh, healing ceremonies sometimes. And they ranged in scale from just a couple of people talking, standing on public park benches and shouting at passerbys to huge, well-organized gatherings of thousands in huge city venues. Now, upward mobility depended only on the preacher's ability to capture and hold attention. So those who could often uh, prosper in these, these circuits were the ones that could, like, do the Hitler, speak really well. Collections were taken, and enthralled throngs dug deep in their pockets when the speaker was good. So the most successful revivalists frequently drove flashy cars and wore tailor-made suits. You can hear a fantastic song called Would Jesus Wear a Rolex? Uh, it escapes me who it's by, but it's a fucking hilarious song. Most of those scraped along on donations of spare change and depended on offers of meals and a place to sleep from do-gooders in the congregation. Jim still had his duties at Somerset Methodist most of the days on... Uh, on Sundays and whenever else his help was required, but on weekday nights, or on Saturdays and occasional Sundays, after meeting his obligations, Jones began to try his luck with the revivals. And sensibly, he didn't immediately strike out on his own. Instead, he attended prayer meetings and healing services in tents and fields outside in small towns in Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan. Places within reasonable driving distance of Indianapolis, and many of these featured several individuals preaching one after another. Jones paid close attention. What worked, what didn't. What biblical phrases and references regularly elicited the strongest response? And how far did the most effective preachers go in espousing personal beliefs and biblical interpretations? Most of all, he studied the bullshit healings. I mean, I don't mean to slander a religion, but I think we can all agree and say that the laying of hands, probably horseshit. I've never had it done to me, but I've known enough people said it was horseshit. I believe it's horseshit. Love to hear your opinion on that. Please don't hesitate to message me. Driving out demons, curing cancer and other diseases, making the lame walk, the blind see, laying the hands, or loudly petitioning the Lord, doing these things successfully and with flair guaranteed not only fame, but also huge money, but also uh, the allegiance by impressed members of the audience. And so, at first in a small primitive setting, Jones set out to heal people. He recalled, thinking that if the sons of bitches can do it, then I can do it too. Amen, Father, amen. And I tried my first act of healing. I don't remember how. Didn't work out too well, but I kept watching those fucking healers. I thought there must be a way you can do this for good, that you can get a crowd guaranteed, get some money, and then do some good with the money. Yeah, like buy yourself some drugs. Jones first successfully amazed revival audiences by relying on memory and not on miracles. They're like fucking con men. They're fortune-telling con men. Before speaking, he began mingling with the crowd, memorizing bits of overheard conversation. He started taking little notes in his head. He had one of those stupid good memories, so it was easy for him. Many people attended revivals or healing services in the hopes that they would be healed or revived in faith and they thought that their God was aware of sympathetic 
or aware and sympathetic of their tribulations. And thanks to his stealthy reconnaissance, since nobody really knew who he was, Jones was able to provide that. As he preached, he would call out the names of somebody in the audience, speaking about personal things he apparently had no way of knowing, and then assuring them that God would intervene. Listeners were shocked, and so was his wife, Marceline, who said, my reaction was one of amazement. It was as if I walked on air and could not feel my feet on the ground, and it was difficult for me even to speak. How sweet. Word spread about a young preacher man with God-given powers to read minds and prophesize. Uh, First a few, then gradually more and more people began turning out to witness Jim Jones reading minds. That still wasn't healing, though. But then came a critical moment at a Columbus, Indiana revival, and Jones would claim that a little old lady, dressed in white, called him over and said, I perceive that you're a prophet. You shall be heard all around the world, and tonight you should begin your ministry. Jones took his place at the pulpit, closed his eyes, and... All this shit flew through his mind, according to him, and he would just call people out, and they'd get healed of everything, or at least they'd temporarily believe that they were. Even Jones was skeptical of all this shit. He said he didn't know how to explain how people got healed of every goddamn thing under the sun, that's for sure, or apparently how they got healed at all. How long the healings lasted, he had no idea. He'd always been a bit of a showman, if you remember, with his friends, if you want to call them that, in high school and elementary school. But his healings were way more dramatic and the crowds gathered but they still were not large enough for Jones so he stuck to the rural revival circuit as a result just getting his chops up but his confidence as it did grew more and more and he became the most plain spoken about his personal beliefs at this time using healings as a means of attracting audiences for his real message and the real message was he's preaching integration he's opposed to the war and throwing in some Uh, new age-ish old school philosophy. Touting integration at revivals to white conservative Christians was particularly risky, so Jones lost some of his audience when he did. But he was fine with that. An inclusive congregation was his first huge issue with the church. Jones' success as a roving revival meeting preacher increased his frustrations with the Somerset Methodist. There is where he had no freedom to say or do what it was that he wanted to do. Uh, and he wasn't allowed to do the things that were bringing him so much of his much-needed attention at this church. If he remained with the Methodist faith, his career path would be rigidly defined, more school, subordinate roles at various churches, and years before finally gaining leadership of a congregation, undoubtedly a small, quiet white one. Most Methodist congregations, Somerset included in this, remained completely white, Jones was impatient with the philosophy of gradual change, and he wanted to make things happen immediately. The tempting solution was to leave Somerset and go and strike out on his own, but that was a huge step, and for a little while, Jones hesitated. Uncomfortably, balancing his alternate personalities of miracle-working country preacher and dutiful student pastor, then sometime in the early 1954, Somerset made the decision for him. Jones and Marceline would say, Uh, Later, they were dismissed because of their efforts to bring blacks into the congregation. That's not very likely. Jones would have faced a near-impossible task in recruiting African-Americans to Somerset because few blacks lived anywhere near the church. Quarter century later, the FBI investigators probed Jones' personal history 
They interviewed a former Somerset member who testified that the unpaid student pastor was asked to leave when members accused him of lying and stealing funds. The aspersion is also dubious. Jones had no access to Somerset's money, and whatever he raised from his outside preaching belonged to him, not the church. But clearly, things had reached a point where both sides were ready to separate or kill each other. And Jim Jones left Somerset Methodist to establish a church all of his own. That's foreshadowing right there. A church where you get something now. I'm going to stop just for a second right here and uh, want to remind all of you that this has been another ad-free listening experience. And that being said, I would like to take this time to play an advertisement from somebody that did not ask me to play this. Tired of using regular blankets like this asshole? Do they somehow destroy your heating bills? Do you struggle when trying to figure out how to put them on? Are mundane tasks like answering the phone now impossibly difficult? Well, morons, now there's hope with the new What the F*** Blanket, the blanket that'll ruin your sex life. Now you can answer the phone with confidence. Awesome! Help Grandpa enjoy the O'Reilly Factor. Spoiler alert, Snape kills Dumbledore. Your dad will blog about how comfortable he is. I can't believe a black man's president. The What the F*** Blanket is made of the exact same materials regular blankets are, but looks twice as retarded. Basically, it's a robe that you wear backwards. The What the F*** Blanket will turn you into a complete shut-in that never leaves the house. So color a book, drink some tea, and hold a baby. You know, things you couldn't do with a regular blanket. And don't worry, one size fits all. So creepy dads can lie in a seductive pose. With the What the F*** blanket, you can take your dog and roast him on an open fire. Ruin your child's self-esteem and wear it in public. Sarah's not getting a date for the prom, look at her! So whether you're reading the obituaries, or viewing scrambled porn, or clogging your arteries, or telling a racist joke, you will look like a tool. Believe it or not, some dumbasses have paid as much as 60 bucks for the What the F*** blanket, which kind of makes me want to scream. Available in blueberry, mint, and blood flavors. Call now and receive a free... Flashlight? Why would you need a flashlight with your blanket? And she doesn't even need it. Look, you can see the text from here. She's reading it in broad daylight. What the <sighs> Damn it. Side effects of the what the f blanket include but are not limited to heart failure, herpes, social awkwardness, never getting laid, looking like a dick, super herpes, the what the f blanket. Just, <sighs> just give up. I love the Snuggie. I mean the what the fuck blanket. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. Anyway, a church where you get something now. So one morning in 1954, a man named Ron Hattleman was in his office in a shit area of Indianapolis. Hattleman was director of the Quakers Church, the Quaker Church's inner city programs, which attempted to provide clothing and other forms of assistance to the city's impoverished African-American population. All the major denominations made at least some small effort on behalf of the Indianapolis poor and coordinated their individual limited efforts when they could. This guy worked out of a house owned by the Disciples of Christ. They allowed him to turn the tiny kitchen into an office, which Hattleman and a secretary occupied. His responsibility was overseeing his church's services to the inner city's elderly. The assignment was tough, and it didn't really have many rewards, no matter who he helped. Uh, and he also realized that there were a ton of desperate old people that he wasn't going to be able to help. 
but he loved his job and he relished the company of other like-minded individuals who weren't offended by his openly acknowledged belief in socialism, which at the time was still a four-letter word. I don't know if it's ever stopped being a four-letter word. Haldeman's work that morning was interrupted by an unexpected visitor. It was a young man with piercing eyes and he introduced himself as Jim Jones and launched into a spirited explanation of the church he was trying to found in that area. Uh, that in and of itself was not unusual. Self-anointed ministers often opened storefront churches, which were uh, just a, it's a kind of a clever way of saying unaffiliated churches, and almost always the efforts were short-lived because congregations just didn't establish in the heart of the Indianapolis slums. But old Jonesy bubbled with enthusiasm. He planned to call his new church Community Unity because everybody would be welcome. A little space had been found for his services, and he and his wife were about to go door to door handing out fucking flyers. I hate that shit. I'm home. Leave me the fuck alone. I don't like it at work. I don't like it at home. I don't like it when I'm walking. Get away from me. Oh, man, I had... There's a section of my work where we have predominantly kosher items. And this, some fucking cunt comes through with, uh, like, fire and brimstone rapture pamphlets and fucking stuffs them in the kosher section almost weekly. It's upsetting. Jones stressed that they were focusing on low-income black neighborhoods in particular. It was disgraceful that everybody wasn't treated equally. You know what, man? He's fucking right. Uh, Jones intended that his new church was going to be a way of changing that, at least uh, starting small in Indianapolis. Hattleman, believe it or not, was charmed. Here was somebody who shared his fucking beliefs. Uh, Jones asked him about his background, and Hattleman revealed his Quaker affiliation. Jones got very excited at the coincidence because he, too, was a lifelong Quaker. He had been educated in Quaker schools and wanted nothing more than for a community uni to affiliate with the Quaker faith. And that settled it for Hattleman. He had to help him. He invited Jones, at no charge, to share his office and the services of his secretary, which the services of most secretary, uh, blowjobs, get to sexually harass him, sometimes they make you coffee, and uh, sometimes they answer the phone. I think in this time that's pretty much how it went. Not that I've ever had a secretary that I sexually harassed, but if I had one, I probably wouldn't, so, ha. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I got a tangent there. Uh, and he said that he could use his office for his daily operations and make his efforts seem more legitimate. But by the time Jones left the next morning, Ron Hattleman really wanted community unity to be successful. Despite his new friend's unshakable belief that it would, Old Hattleman had his doubts. He didn't doubt Jim's intentions, but he doubted the city that where the system was mostly just rooted in benign racism and it had thwarted for decades any meaningful type of integration. Uh, without the hostility towards blacks that was openly displayed in the South, Indianapolis whites kept black people in their permanent, uh, just considerably lesser place. So in 54, the vast majority of blacks in Indiana lived in its major industrial cities where there was work. 
In Indianapolis, the African-American population exploded during and directly after the Depression because industry. The city was relatively close to the southern states. Its factory jobs and apparent lack of Jim Crow segregation laws were a beacon to African-Americans desperate to escape the good old land of cotton. Eventually, blacks compromised more than uh, 10% of the population. One study estimated that 44,000 of them were within the city limits alone, which terrified lower-class whites who felt that their jobs were threatened by employees who would work way harder for a lot less money. Middle-class whites anticipated black residential encroachment and the plummeting property values as a result, so backlash followed. It was effective and not particularly overt. Trade unions influenced hiring at major Indianapolis plants, and most of these unions voted not to accept blacks as a member. It's fucked up, man. As a member of a union, that's uh, how far we've come. The city established what appeared to be the most democratic of housing ordinances, and nobody could buy a home in an established neighborhood unless the majority of the current residents voted and approved the purchase. Holy fucking shit. The school district sent black teenagers to Crispus Attackus High School, built besides a shit-smelling canal in an area nicknamed Frog Island. And since all African Americans were crammed into their homes in the same shithole slum, the students that were attending their neighborhood schools, uh, so for decades, the Crispus Attackus Titers, Tigers were not allowed to compete in sports against white city schools. Uh, most likely because it's unfair, but they hid behind the 1950s uh, federal laws that mandated... Or, I'm sorry, in, in the 1950s, national laws mandated integration of high school sports, and the Tigers quickly won back-to-back -back Indiana State basketball championships. Yet, even in this, its players were denied a significant honor. Traditionally, white Indianapolis school squads winning state titles were landed with a parade through the downtown. City officials limited the Crispus Attackus parades to the streets in the school's immediate vicinity. Blacks in Indianapolis turned to the leaders of their churches, who in 43 were ins instrumental in forming uh, a citizen's council. The new organization's purpose was to ensure good racial, racial relations, which they would shine them on. It, they, they would at least try to make it seem like they were listening. Uh, African-American ministers called the offices of the mayor, senior city staff, school board members, and other influential white leaders requesting meetings to discuss their grievances. They were gratified at the quick, positive response, and dozens of meetings were held. The white leaders listened intently and promised serious consideration of all that they heard. Afterwards, letters were exchanged, and sometimes committees were formed. Every time the black ministers wanted additional meetings, they were scheduled, and if the African-American leaders were frustrated by the lack of immediate action, they never demanded more from their counterparts. Confrontation was simply not the Indiana way. Black residents were pleased when their spokesman reported that there had been another meeting and things looked promising moving forward. Uh, they mistook access for influence, though. So, nothing ever changed in Indianapolis. They were trapped in poverty, confined to vermin-ridden slums where their children were educated in a crumbling, under-equipped school. African Americans in the city most often found church to be their only source of comfort or solace. It was a relief to spend long hours there, listening to sermons that reminded them that God loved them, and there was a promise of heaven, eternal life in the land of milk and honey, whatever that fucking means, and commiseration now and better times after death were the message of the city's black church. 
which is something to hold on to. I can see why you would go. Their ministers did little to help the members overcome the immediate challenges of Indianapolis and its apparently uh, intangible racism. And it took a white preacher to show them how. That would be Young Jimba. The immediate challenge for Young Jimba was that the community unity had to offer inner-city blacks something that present churches did not. Whatever his personal doubts about the loving sky god and the promise of heaven, these beliefs were ingrained in those that he wanted to attract. He uh, very condescendingly talked about shit about the sky god. Mostly to his wife, I think. Attacking what they devoutly believed would get Jones nowhere. In terms of entertainment or giving congregants a show to take their minds off the troubles, he couldn't hold up to the competition. He might as well have tra- like fucking challenged them to a free throw competition. Not to be heinously racist, but I think he would have lost. At least in its early stages, Community Unity would have no choir to offer mighty spirit-raising renditions of hymns, and uh, the general lack of showmanship just came from Jones alone. His natural pulpit-pounding flamboyance was matched by the black preachers, uh, to be sure, because that's who he ripped off for it, and often, and if not every time, they surpassed him. Mind-reading and healings are great attractions, but unlike billowing tents and sprawling fairgrounds of the revival circuit, Community Unity had a cramped storefront and it would have no crowd for Jones to easily infiltrate. He'd be bumping shoulders with everybody, and they all knew who he was now. So picking up information from overheard pieces of conversation was out of the question. Yet not long after he accepted Habelman's invitation to share the office, Jones bragged to the to the Quaker official that neighborhood blacks had begun attending community unity. Not many, but at least a few. And it was a start. So as weeks passed, Jones was delighted to report that his congregation had grown to two or three dozen, with new faces every week. And Hattleman was pretty pleased, but puzzled. It seemed pretty unlikely. One Sunday morning, he decided to visit Community Unity and see it for himself. So he took a seat in a folding chair, and he was surrounded by perhaps 25 people, most of them black, most of them elderly women. There were also a few white worshippers. They had followed Jones to Community Unity from Somerset Methodist. And Hattleman was prepared for a typical hymn prayer, hymn prayer, sermon, collection plate uh, service. And Marceline Jones wrote the title of several hymns on a chalkboard. As she seemed, like she was about to lead the small congregation in the song, old Jimmy barreled into the room and instead of signaling for the singing to commence, asked a general question of all present and said, What's bothering you? A hand towards the back went up and an old black woman stood and complained about the electric company. There was some problem with her service, and even though she constantly complained, nothing was done to fix it. But the company still sent monthly bills, which she still paid. And when she demanded, finally, maintenance before she paid, the white people she dealt with threatened to cut off her power. There were murmurs of assent, and almost everyone present, certainly all the blacks, had endured something very similar. The woman told Jones that she felt she had no choice other than to pay without getting a request to repairs. Her family, which included her fucking grandchildren, couldn't live in the dark. She was ready to give up, and she didn't know what else to do. But old man Jonesy did. He ordered Marceline to step and fetch him a pen and paper and said, let's write a letter. He told the old woman that uh, Jones dictated a message to the electric company, citing the lady's constant attempts to get her problem resolved and explained that all she wanted was the service to be paid for. He asked the rest of the congregation for suggestions about what to say and what else should be in the letter. They recommended some embellishments, and these were also added. 
Then Jones had the letter passed around and everybody signed it, and Jones said that this is a show of unity, and it proved that they were a family in this church. They worked together and they helped each other out. The next day, as Jones promised, he'd personally deliver the letter to the electric company's main office, which he did, and while he was there, he'd find out who the right person to discuss the matter was face to face, and then he'd sit down and explain how wonderful a lady was being treated unfairly. Things had to be, or they fucking would be, made right. Only after making that vow did Jones allow Marceline to lead the singing of the hymn. Then Jones, as was his custom, preached an obscenely long sermon, heavy on scripture emphasis, and uh, really dwelling on passages involving tolerance and love, which is commendable. That was not the time for that, and he, he was doing a good thing. At the next Sunday service, Jones asked the old woman to stand up and tell everybody what had happened, and she giddily reported that her problem with the electric company was solved. Someone had come out, and everything was fixed. She thanked everyone for their help, and Pastor Jones most of all. Together, they'd stood up to the white devil at the electric company, and they won. Jones was gloating about it. See, when you come to my church, you get something now. He urged his small flock to start bringing the rest of their families and tell their friends, so Community Unity was able to promise heaven someday for the righteous, of course, but it would not neglect problems that they encountered during their lives either, which were, there was no shortage of. So that differed from pretty much all the other black churches, and the message resonated. Some weeks, uh, the, the growth was better than others, but every Sunday brought at least a few new worshipers, which slow and steady, it's all it takes. And some left after a week or two, but most of them stayed. This white preacher named Jim Jones didn't just talk about doing shit, he fucking did it. So Marceline was pleased with Community Unity's early success, but frustrated with her role. Of course, she knew that Jimbo was going to be the focal point, up there preaching the gospel that his wife loved and helping people out with their ordinary day-to-day -day problems. It was just wonderful that he did that, and she honestly believed it, because she was not a bad person. But Marceline expected to have her own important role, organizing the individual worship services to fit themselves, or to fit themes, rather. She would ask Jim every week what he planned to talk about in his next sermon. Then Marceline would pour over the hymnal, picking out just the right songs to get everybody thinking about the specific things Jim and the Bible had to teach them on that particular Sunday. It also helped her to know in advance how long that motherfucker planned to preach. Because based on her own experience with church back in Richmond, Marceline believed that at a certain point people wanted to get on with the rest of their Sunday and it wasn't all about Jim. She wanted to pick just the right uplifting hymn to send everybody home with light spirits and a refreshed heart. So Jim cooperated, at least during the week. He'd tell her what he was thinking about in terms of his sermon, but no matter how carefully she tried to work out a plan or how often she went over it with Jim in advance, on Sunday it was more of a guideline than a script. He had asked the people if they had any problems, as he did, more and more every Sunday, and the more often he was able to solve the problems, the more people came to the, the congregation's masses, or their churches, their services. Some Sunday, the letter writing went on for hours, and afterwards, Jim was still in no hurry to wrap things up. He might go on and stick... He very easily could have stuck to the sermon that he told her he was going to do in the morning, but usually he'd read the paper before he went out, and uh, he'd see a news story describing an unjust act perpetrated on the powerless, and he'd talk about that instead, just baffling Marceline, and infuriating her, kind of. <laughs> it got so that there had to be two or three breaks each Sunday so people could use the bathroom. Man, they fucking unionized. They got two tens and a lunch. The service would be over when Jim was too exhausted to speak any longer. 
Marceline feared that everybody else would get so bored that they'd stop showing up, but this never seemed to be the case. They appreciated their pastor wearing himself out just for them and their entertainment and their souls. Yet most of them had no idea just how hard he worked on their behalf. It cost a fuckload of money to rent the storefront, and the meager offerings Jones collected on Sunday from the impoverished followers was not enough. Marceline's salary from her full-time job barely covered the essentials for his immediate family, and so Jones worked too. Conveniently, selling fucking spider monkeys door-to-door for $30 each. $29 each. He imported them, somehow, from a firm in South America. And in April of 1954, the Indianapolis Star ran a story about his refusal to accept a shipment of monkeys because they were ill. Beyond that, he held other part-time jobs, which was just him doing anything to bring in a few extra dollars for the community unity cause. And he barely slept. He slept when he could. And this was really around the time that his sleep deprivation started to catch up to him, because it always does. And by the standard of what anyone else might have hoped for, community unity was a glaring success. It had built a small but enthusiastic congregation, helping its members in critical ways with their everyday lives. But it still provided traditional Bible-based worship that they needed, or they felt that they needed. Jones still wanted much more, though. So his church was good, yes, but it wasn't serving needy people with, without regard for, the, for their race or for desperate economic straits. So in that sense, he was practicing socialism. But any current accomplishments were going to be limited, because already Community Unity was outgrowing the cramped storefront space it rented on Sundays. Some larger permanent place was going to be needed. So neighborhood fundraising to buy appropriate property was not going to be possible because nobody in the neighborhood had any fucking money. And helping a few people with the electric company or school officials was gratifying, yes, but Jones dreamed of much greater things and benefiting multitudes. Among his goals was a soup kitchen feeding not only for the homeless, as was traditional, but for anyone who was hungry and wanted a free meal. Uh, A community clothing drive where everything was available at no cost, free childcare for poor working mothers, assistance in helping the unemployed find employment, Uh, Such services were especially needed among the slums in Indianapolis, especially with African-American communities. And Jones had no intention of proposing solutions that required participation by outsiders who might threaten his personal control. So if the things Jones wanted next were going to happen, it fell on him to do it himself. And he believed that he knew how to do it. With crystal meth, brother! Jim Jones returned to the Revival Tent meeting circuit with a new agenda. His earlier efforts were, in effect, training, where he learned how to attract audiences of complete strangers and win them over with a mixture of bullshit and bullshit. Next, he set out to establish himself as a top-tier traveling bullshit man, and that would position him to bring in badly needed money to his congregation. To begin with, Jones wanted to own, but not rent, own a much bigger building for his community, with sufficient space for aggressive expansion. His performances were carefully structured. They continued to combine Bible-quoting rhetoric with healings. He had a fine sense of just how many miracles were necessary to keep individual crowds uh, still enthusiastic about it and believing it. Most of these still involved eavesdropping in advance, whatever he could hear. He commanded headaches to vanish, coughs to desist, and on very rare occasions, the lame to walk. The miracles didn't always come off as Jones had liked or as his audience hoped. He was dealing with strangers and could not count on their cooperation. So he was careful not to ask too much. 
a woman in a wheelchair might be gently instructed to stand and take just a single shaky step rather than run or dance down the aisle. So then Jones could declare that even the slightest hint of progress as the initial moment of gradual hearing is the initial moment in a gradual healing process that God granted through him. And it fucking worked, man. Many people who came to see Jones for the first time in smaller settings returned to his appearances in larger venues later on. So, in expansive tents and mid-sized auditoriums that held decent-sized crowds, Jones preached, healed, and had collection plates passed around, often taking away hundreds of dollars. Both he and Marceline recognized a September 1954 program as a turning point. Marceline described the scene to a letter in Lynetta Jones back in Richmond. Dearest Mom, I feel that I must write you of the latest developments in the life of your beloved son. Through all our tests and hardships, I had faith that Jimmy would be something special. This, however, is beyond our fondest dreams. Saturday night in Cincinnati, 200 were turned away. Well over 1,000 stayed. Sunday mornings found Jones back at Community Unity, preaching about helping each other and being a true family. Jones rarely asked the congregation to help uh, rarely asked the congregation to help compose letters now. He had far less time to personally assist with individual problems, but there was still a sense of excitement among the growing congregation as Jones and Marceline shared stories and news clippings about turned-away crowds at the outside program. Their pastor was a famous man. It gave his followers a pleasant sense of their own and improved status. People in other places heard that Pastor Jim and they uh, came to town every once in a while, but they didn't really know who he was. Community Unity had him every Sunday. The congregation didn't realize that Jones considered their church to be only the first rung on the very high ladder and not his only rung. Yet even as his reputation grew, Jones was still frustrated. He drew audiences in the thousands, but he still couldn't preach the socialist themes that formed the basis of his real personal philosophy. I could get the crowds together, but I couldn't get them politicized. The necessity of healings at almost every one of his circuit performances put him under a tremendous amount of pressure. He certainly knew other healers at least sometimes used plants in the audience and he didn't really have anybody to plant. He traveled without an entourage other than his wife and Jones was careful, at least for the time being, and to let Marceline believe that he had developed the power to read the thoughts of others rather than simply gaining information by eavesdropping so Jones began showing the signs related to a stress-related problem, the problems that he had been developing on his own, grind, which included grinding his teeth to the point of developing jaw and dental problems. It proved so severe that he had to take a few weeks off for treatment. Jones asked Ron Haldeman to preside over Sunday services at Community Unity in his place. Haldeman was stunned by the congregation and how large it had grown in the few months since his earlier visits, where there had previously been only two dozen or so, now a hundred people crammed into the storefront. Soon afterwards, Joan asked Haldeman for a favor. The two men had grown close personally as well as professionally, along with their wives who were also friends. They often went out for inexpensive dinners. Jones especially liked a place called Acapulco Joe's. He relished spicy food, but this time Jones wanted a private conversation. So he told Haldeman, that while it was exciting to see Community Unity grow as an independent church, now he yearned for something more. And from birth, Jones reiterated he'd been a committed Quaker. With Community Unity finally established, uh, Jones wanted to formally affiliate his new church with the Quakers. Quakers. 
In the most critical stage of potential affiliation, Jones knew was submitting a written request, one that specifically demonstrated how the congregation adhered to and could help overall Quaker philosophy and goals. Halderman was gratified. He said he'd be glad to help his friend with the application, and Jones pressed, would Ron actually write the application? After all, Ron knew better than anybody exactly what would convince the Quaker Examination Board. And of course, Jones could write it himself, but Ron could do it so much better, and wouldn't Community Unity, with an almost entirely black membership, move the regional Quaker organization towards complete integration? And that was the very thing that Haldeman himself wanted to do more than anything else. Haldeman was flattered, and felt that he could not refuse, so he started writing that fucking thing immediately. So as later events proved, Jim Jones never intended to surrender control of his church to anybody, including admins that were representing a large part of the denomination. But affiliation would provide him with a powerful tool as he worked to gain school and political influence. It would be harder for elected officials and business leaders to ignore a man theoretically representing tens of thousands of peoples and a major denomination that an independent ghetto preacher whose church membership totaled a few hundred slum dwellers. Uh, there were also tax considerations, too. Under Indiana state law, only ministers representing established denominations were entitled to personal tax, break, tax breaks. Jones was beginning to rake in money on his preaching circuit, and he wanted to keep as much of it as possible, though mostly for community unity programs rather than for himself. So, in very short order, the Quakers declined the community unity's application, and Jones and, Jones and Haldeman believed that the church, despite the avowed outreach to the impoverished, did not want black people and they were inherently racist. Alternatively, when the Quakers investigated Jim Jones, they may have been a bit put off by his rumored shady financial actions as a student pastor at Somerset Methodist, or suspected him of staging phony healings. He re returned to the regional uh, revival circuit where he was now a very well established attraction for time's sake unfortunately we're gonna have to do a yada yada kind of over this uh, this 80s fucking inspirational music and short clip saga that I'm imagining in my head of Jim Jones doing nice things for people and being friendly uh, because I'd say we've only covered about 10% of the information. There's a shitload that happened in this time, but uh, it's all probably not why you wanted to listen to this podcast. So, in 1954, prominent preachers on the circuit took notice of Jones. Some represented global evangelical programs, and they offered to hire him and send him all over the world to preach. It would have been rewarding financially, as well as spiritually. He, his wife, and their adopted daughter, Agnes, could live comfortably, but Jones said, nay. He told Marceline that real social change anywhere could be brought about, brought about only if a leader stayed in that place, if the leader stayed in that place. And he'd chosen Indianapolis as his battlefield, and goddammit, he'd be fucked in the ass if they left. Marceline was proud of her, of her husband's principle and his refusal to move on and give up. She believed that Jim didn't need anyone else's shit, and he would become famous on his own. He could use his God-given gifts to take what Marceline disdainfully termed the Oral Roberts route of self, I don't know what that word is, um, self-appointed ministry, gaining personal wealth as an evangelical and being renowned because of who you are as a person. But Jim didn't really give a fuck about that either. Uh, some of his beliefs 
kind of paralleled that, but most of his beliefs and actions alarmed the fuck out of her. But look at what he'd already accomplished. He was becoming a great man, and all the things that he, he'd he wanted to do so far, he'd done, and all the things that he still intended to do, she had no doubt he would accomplish, and that was terrifying. Marceline Jones was the first, but far from the last, person to decide that Jim Jones' program and goals more than compensated for his personal flaws, if done correctly. So taking all in, Marceline believed her husband was indeed a great man, though extremely difficult to live with and be in a relationship with. Uh, so, despite her best judgment, she would remain in her challenging marriage and do all that she could to assist Jim. She was all in. And she could stop mentioning the possibility of divorce to her family because it wasn't going to happen. Let's take a, another minute to listen to another product that does not sponsor me. If you're dumb enough to buy a new car this weekend, you're a big enough schmuck to come to Big Bill Hell's car. Bad deal. Cars that break down. Thieves. If you think you're going to find a bargain at Big Bill, you can kiss my ass. It's our belief that you're such a stupid motherfucker. You'll fall for this bullshit. Guaranteed. If you find a better deal, shove it up your ugly ass. You heard us right. Shove it up your ugly ass. Bring your tray. Bring your title. Bring your wife. We'll fuck her. That's right. We'll fuck your wife. Because at Big Bill Hell, you're fucked six ways from Sunday. Take a hike to Big Bill Hell. Home of challenge pissing. That's right. Challenge pissing. How does it work? If you can piss six feet in the air straight up and not get wet, you get no down payment. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't fuck with us or we'll rip your nuts off. Only at Big Bill Hell. The only dealer that tells you to fuck off. Hurry up, asshole. This event ends the minute after you write us a check. And it better not bounce or you're a dead motherfucker. Go to hell. Big Bill Hell's car. All the more filthiest. And exclusive home of the meanest sons of bitches in the state of Maryland. Guaranteed. Back. So, as I said, it's going to be a bit of a yada yada for some of this, but Jones experienced a shitload of discrimination against his congregation during this time because all the white churches wanted to recruit him, but they did not want him to bring the congregation, which was not something that he was, uh, he was a fan of. So he cut off ties with a lot of different people and pissed off a shitload of people. So, he attended a service in Philadelphia in the 50s by this guy named Father Divine. And he told his friends how impressed he had been and said that he was determined to change his own style up to be more like him. Ross E. Case, one of his aides, recalled that week and said he was talking about sex or Father Divine or Daddy Grace and was envious of how they were adored by their people and the absolute loyalty that they got. He wanted all the affection and loyalty for himself just like that. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, he stayed about a dozen years in total in Indianapolis, and he had started to urge his parishioners to call him father and address his wife as mother. Aides later said that he began fake healings in excess during this time period, using cooperative church members to claim that he had miraculously cured them, or using the intestines of a dead, rotting animal as evidence to show that he'd exercised cancer from the congregants. Which is fucking disgusting. Usually chicken intestine. And at the same time, there were some followers who alleged that he'd actually cured them of their arthritis or other ailments just on the show alone. They were compelled by the fucking bullshit. His wife worked closely with him at this time uh, as the church grew in, just like she promised. They began to help poor blacks just as much as poor whites now, and they did open their soup kitchens, they did help poor people get jobs, and they did establish facilities for the elderly that were actually decent facilities. They did really good shit for them. So in 61, the couple had a son named Stephen Gandhi Jones. 
And as the congregation grew, Mr. Jones realized that he could persuade its members to vote as a unit on social issues, just like a labor union that interested him. So political leaders noticed his ability to assemble huge numbers of people at campaign rallies. So when politics got involved, and if you remember, Marceline was involved in politics just because of who her family was. So she has a history of that, and all of the political connections came from her. If it wasn't for her, politically, probably wouldn't have hacked it. So in 1961, he applied for the job of Indianapolis Human Relations Commissioner, whatever the fuck that means, and he got it. The selection committee thought that being a pastor could pacify businesses that were discriminating in a very calm and unemotional way, and it did. So the same year, that couple adopted a black child and named him James Jones Jr. Eventually, they would adopt six other black, white, and Korean children. They called it the Rainbow Family, which is fucking cool, man. In the meantime, rumors were circulating in the church that Mrs. Jones was extremely unhappy with her husband still. Um, and uh, that Jim had been having affairs with other members and their wives of the congregation beginning in the early 1960s. So he told one of his friends that he felt dirty after having intercourse with his wife and had a sense of guilt about it. He confided to another friend that he preferred sex with younger women, whom he was able to dominate more easily than his wife. It says, I have a tiny dick to me. The minister's claims of faith healing and mimicking of Father Divine, who he was very impressed with, while um, successfully increasing the size of his congregation, made some church officials very uneasy. But no efforts were made to discipline him. One church official told Mr. Jones that he wanted to verify his claims of faith healing and said he would make an investigation. But to dodge that bullet, Jones simply refused to cooperate and made plans to leave Indianapolis. So in the mid-1960s, old friends said they noticed a change in Mr. Jones, especially a growing sense of self-importance and autocratic methods in dealing with his congregation. He became impatient and full of criticism, and he established a bit something that was like an interrogation committee to challenge congregation members who disagreed with him. Because obviously you're doing fake faith healings. People aren't that stupid. Somebody's going to notice. And then public officials in Indianapolis began, began investigating a large number of real estate transfers from members of his church to him and to profit-making corporations controlled by him, his wife, and his mother. So like the old people in the facilities transferring their houses or leaving them in the will to them, weird. Barton Hunter, who was a supervising official of the church in Indianapolis in, in Indianapolis then said that the reports of those transactions were made to him and he questioned Mr. Jones about them personally but he was satisfied that the minister was not taking the property for personal gain because Jones could preach the good word of socialism, that's to be sure. There was evidence that he did have properties transferred to himself rather than to the church, but from his point of view, he was the church. And he was. And as he saw it, he was able to handle the funds better than anyone in the church was, because he saw himself as the embodiment of it. So he had now grown to become an extremely effective preacher, and his style was a lot like Billy Graham. He would say, the Bible says, and this is the way it is. It had great appeal with its unsophisticated and spattered sophisticated sayings and different ways that he could reach the people that were going, which he was very good at, very good at relating to people. In today's world, a lot of people like to hear, this is the way I know where I'm going, I invite you to go with me. 
1965, Mr. Jones announced to his congregation that he would, or that the world would be engulfed without a shadow of a doubt by a devastating thermonuclear war on July 15th, 1967. And that was therefore necessary to move to the safe haven of Northern California. So he led about 70 families to the Redwood Valley near Ukiah, which was a rural town set in the Redwoods of Mendocino County. It's absolutely beautiful. About half of these colonizers were black, and their arrival shocked the townspeople. But members of the group kept to themselves, and they were eventually considered good neighbors who worked their asses off and didn't bother the other people, which is what more could you ask for? California has had a long-time um, reputation as fertile ground for persuasive authority figures or religious leaders who offered easy answers to complex problems and offered to make decisions for their followers. It's been known as a haven for that. Manson. Uh, fucking this guy. A bunch of people. Dr. Lois J. Oh, um... What, what is his name? Roger Mahoney. Anyway, Dr. Lois J. West, chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, Los Angeles, that's UCLA, explained, they expect California to be a utopia, but some get disillusioned when they get here, and then they get mixed up with cults, because they promise them the ties to what they're seeking. To lots of these people, the cults look like utopia on the outside. Everybody working for their share, it's fair and equal, free sex, free love, whatever the fuck, and it's never the way it is. His intelligence, soft-spoken friendliness, and seemingly earnest search for a better world impressed the people in the conservative California towns in 1966. He was appointed chairman of the county grand jury. Robert Winslow, the judge who made the appointment, recalled that he was a very bright, humanistic person. He did not seem to be a socialist. They were all nice, concerned people. Their most significant characteristic was that they wanted to come to the aid of anybody in trouble. Mr. Jones didn't seem to be a fanatic when I knew him, although people were emotionally dependent on him, to be sure. The people in his community built their entire lives around him and his church. Although he was accepted socially and on a political establishment, few people actually attended his church. They didn't like him that much. And then in October of 68, a guy named Timothy Stone, who was politically a liberal with a Stanford University law degree, and also just so happened to be a dep deputy district attorney, he began to attend the services. And if it wasn't, wasn't for this guy, uh, he wouldn't have gotten nearly as far as he did. This guy was hugely involved. Largely, he said that he became involved because of the emphasis on helping the poor. And Timothy Stone, this poor bastard, he was genuinely a good guy. As far as that goes. The next year, he sold just about everything he owned to become a church member and to be the personal aid of Mr. Jones. He was, he said, influenced by the assassination of Dr. King. Thomas Martin, the Mendocino County probation officer, said that Mr. Stone's enrollment was a complete turning point. He was highly respected in the community and people did take notice. So that gave the church immediate credence. In 1970, the minister told Mr. Stone that he believed he had a message that should be heard beyond the Redwood Valley and he began preaching in low-income black neighborhoods in San Francisco. In 1971, he bought a church in San Francisco, calling it the People's Temple, and later, another location in Los Angeles. He was franchising out. Along the way, his brand of social and political revivalism caught the attention of California's liberal and radical political leaders. He bought 13-type Greyhound buses that he displayed 
to, to make it to pull it off, he displayed some of the most brilliant organizational genius that anybody had ever seen. He could fit 13 buses together on a day trip with is uh, with a shitload of people in him. I lost the number, but he was very gifted with organization. That's like all cult leaders are to a certain extent, but he was especially good at it. He saw the bigger picture, I believe, for the majority of the time. At its peak in the 1970s, the church claimed a membership of just about 20,000 people only in California. Nonetheless, some church members began to complain privately to each other of Mr. Jones' marathon sermons that lasted six hours or more. His open preoccupation with fucking and his emphasis on work seemed to consume almost all their spare time. They actually were trying to impress each other so much, and since they don't have things, oh man, they don't have stuff, they were bragging uh, to each other about how much they worked and how little they slept, just like their fearless leader, who was in fact on drugs at this point. Uh, so they were mad about all that, and there were rumors that more and more members were being forced to empty their bank accounts and sell their homes to raise money for the church. Forced is a lofty uh, action. They were coerced, I would say. Jones maintained discipline, essentially, by keeping members so tired that they had little time to bitch, and they also didn't have anywhere to go because they'd given everything to him. He had these things that were called cathartis catharsis sessions in which dissidents were ridiculed and literally beaten with paddles that's spanking them. And in 1973, Jones seemed to be growing increasingly paranoid. He interpreted any criticism as a deep personal affront. Others said he was changing explicitly in other ways. A lot of people said, oh, to quote one lady, uh, Fanny Mobley, she said, I loved him. Uh, she was a church member from 72 until 76. She loved the way he sang. He had a beautiful voice. Uh, then he changed. He turned from a beautiful Christian man to Jekyll and Hyde monster. And that is literally drugs. He was doing stimulants to keep himself going. And then if you do enough stimulants to keep yourself going when you're as sleep deprived as, sleep -deprived as this motherfucker is, you got to take benzos. you got to put yourself down. So I think he was taking... Um, fucking stimulants in the morning and out throughout the day and then taking quaaludes to knock himself out. He, in his paranoia, began searching everybody who came into the church and he had people standing around with weapons. It, this happened almost quietly and overnight. It seemingly. On Thursday nights, church members were always shown a movie depicting Nazi atrocities against Jews and Mr. Jones said the United States government was preparing crematoriums for blacks. He said the CIA was out to get us. He didn't like the United States, Mrs. Mobley related. He told us to believe in Marxism. He hated everybody. He hated the president. He said he liked Hitler and Lenin, and he just went crazier and crazier. And he would talk for hours about fucking, about how good he was and how women would think he was making love to them, or women should think he was making love to them and not their husbands, and about how women sent him notes that they wanted to see him. He told everybody not to have sex until they got to the promised land. But when women told him they had no way to raise money for him, he told them to go and sell their pussy on the streets. He said, you're good looking, and you ought to be able to get some money. He was a good looking man, and he knew all the women liked his looks, and he'd say, and oh, he would use it in his benefit. He'd come up to you and say, bunch of creepy shit that I'm not gonna fucking read. <laughs> 
There was a guy named Wayne who was a former bodyguard of Jones, a goon, if you will, and he said that the minister had a voracious appetite for both men and women, and that he appointed one of the secretaries to arrange for women church members to sleep with him. That is scheduled book for it. Later, he said, some of these women complained that Jones was kind of a sadist, if you couldn't figure that out. Mr. Jones' wife knew... He, she knew of these liaisons and seemed distraught about them, and on several occasions seemed to be close to a complete breakdown, but seemed to just keep on trucking. On December 13th, 73, Jones was arrested in a Hollywood theater on a lewd conduct charge. After an undercover, Los Angeles policeman said that Jones had tried to molest him. The charge was subsequently dismissed by the city's attorney office because of the dispute over the legality of the arrest. The arrest was not reported at the time, but was confirmed by law enforcement sources um, the same week. That's weird. The same month that he got arrested, he dispatched a small party of church members to Guyana to scout locations for agricultural communities. And meanwhile, he'd begun a program to manipulate both the press and the political system. He decided that the news media's most popular issue was freedom of press, and he began deploring any potential infringement on it. For example... When four reporters in Fresno, California were put in prison because they refused to reveal their sources, Mr. Jones led groups of members to Fresno to protest. He donated thousands of dollars to journalism organizations and advocated resistance to government infringements on the press and bombarded editors with letters. Although an occasional negative article about the People's Temple did appear in the newspaper, the ploy worked massively well. He was even more successful with the politicians personally. He could deliver 2,000 bodies on six hours' notice, and politicians knew it. Thus, he, uh, he used it to his advantage. This, plus his apparently liberal views, made him popular with political leaders in the city, and uh, state level, and even some national level. It was unbelievable. There was a time where if you were running for office in San Francisco, and you counted uh, in your votes the poor, the blacks, the young people... You better have Jones's support. It was like the union of all those people, like the Teamsters. Unbelievable. And as his political power grew, so did the wealth of his church, which was collected by members in various business enterprises and through levies of 25 to 40 percent of their gross incomes and sales of their homes and other property, many times uh, coerced against their will. They did so out of fear, they would later admit. Mr. Stone said that he personally arranged for $5 million to be deposited in foreign banks, and he said the church's total assets were probably far greater. In August of 1977, uh, New West Magazine carried the first detailed critical report on the church, and Mr. Stone recalled that he had been paranoid long before that, but after the New West article, he got really fucking paranoid. Even before that shitty article got printed, Mr. Jones had moved ahead with this plan to relocate his congregation to Guyana. He'd been bitching about this for a while. He said it would be a socialist utopia where all races could mix in peace and work for common good. After he arrived in Guyana, he increasingly preached about dark forces that were out there to shut down his experiment in communal living. And that brings us to the... Uh, the Guyana camp and on that note that's the end of this episode thank you all very much for tuning back in and the next episode by the look of it will be the last we will talk entirely about the massacre at Jonestown the forced murder mass murder in my opinion um, I think 
a lot of people refer to it as a mass suicide, and I happen to agree with Marcus Parks from the last podcast on the left that it was not, in fact, mass murder, but it or mass suicide, but it was, in fact, mass murder. And he was solely responsible for that shit. I mean, you can lead a horse to water and whatnot, and you can fucking beat it until it drinks. However that saying goes, if at first you don't succeed, I won't be fooled again. I think it was George Bush that said that, Jr. Anyway, so as is our tradition, let's go ahead and take a look at my, uh, my map. For those of you that are tuning in for the first time to this episode... Why would you start the third part of a series, first of all? And second of all, we have a adorable tradition here of looking at my interface that I upload everything on, and I like to see who the most influential people are because on the map that is integrated in my interface, there is a bright light in the city in which the podcast originated, and then there are little lights branching out from that that picked up after the first episode aired. So I usually just attribute whoever the first light was in that city to be the influential one, and I shouts out to the city. I know it's probably a bit of a flawed logic, but it's fun, and I enjoy it, and it strokes my massive ego, which I appreciate. So for the last episode, coming in at number one, man, killing it. Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, consistently climbing. Lake Zurich, Illinois, St. Paul, Minnesota, Scottsdale, Arizona, fuck yeah, Belfast, Northern Ireland, Los Angeles, California, the city of London, Honolulu, Hawaii, Colchester, England, Chicago, Illinois, San Antonio, Texas, Glasgow, Scotland, Altadena, California, Colorado Springs, Hamilton, oof, excuse me, sorry about this one, Waikato, tied with Queensland, and red car, England. Mount Joy is a... Mount Joy must be a cult leader or something, because whoever's in Mount Joy, you are spreading the word like a motherfucker. So thank you very much. You're like what um, what Texas was doing a couple months ago. But on that note, might take us out with another word from one of our non-existent sponsors. Just to reiterate that, this has been another... Nearly, or over, I'm not sure. I can't tell how long this has been until after I've edited it. Edited it, but another long-ass fucking podcast, ad-free, as is my guarantee, because I care about your time, and I don't like getting dicked around when I'm trying to listen to a podcast. Uh, I listened to one today, I was trying a new one, that dicked me around for 15 minutes of them just making, like, fucking monkey noises at each other. It wasn't even an advertisement, because who in their right fucking mind would advertise there? They were just squeaking and screaming at each other about inside jokes that I fucking don't get. So uh, I did not subscribe. But I really wanted to. Because I listen to other podcasts if I try to support people, but fuck you for 15 minutes worth of advertisements and then 25 minutes worth of material. You're a fucking asshole. You're a cunt. You're wasting my time. Which I refuse to do. Because you guys have been kind enough to support me. So the least I can do is attempt to make a quality product in exchange for your time. And if... On that note, if there's anything you think I could do better, please, some of you have already done this, and I'm truly grateful to hear from you guys. I really do enjoy it. Please do not hesitate to get in touch. Uh, you can reach me right now. The website should be up soon, but not yet. It's going to be on Instagram.com slash Duke, D-U-K-E, Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S, 1-7. That is 
Instagram.com, search for Duke Landis 17, or go straight from the URL to Instagram.com slash Duke, as in Wayne Landis, as in uh, Landis, L-A-N-D-I-S, and 17, as in 17. I look forward to hearing from you guys. I will take questions, comments, concerns. Uh, if you feel like singing my praises, that's always nice. If you like telling me you hate me and hope I die, that's nice too. Um, until next time, stay spooky. Ah, uh, college. You've been told your whole life that it's the next logical and natural step after high school. And you've also been told that it is prohibitively expensive. College is one of the biggest investments of your lifetime, so it deserves your careful consideration and strategy. What you decide now will have a tremendous impact on your future, so think about it. Or you can just trust that I have your best interests in mind. Hi, I'm some guy. Here at Horton's Student Loans, we'll help you with the funding you need for your college's largely arbitrary price tag without worrying you with interest or credit ratings. So you can focus on the important things, like making sure you don't have any classes before 11 a.m. and that your dorm room is decorated in a way that will impress your high school self and embarrass your future real self. <laughs> You'll hate them in five years. It's tasteful. <laughs> you don't know anything about anything. Fair. One of the classes you could and should take will be economics, which will surely teach you in intricate detail about how you've been screwed here. Lots of stuff about inflation-adjusted pay increases, but it'll only make sense in the abstract sense because we've carefully designed the modern college experience to insulate you from real financial responsibility as much as possible. Everything about college is designed to trick you into thinking you're an adult when really it's closer to adult training wheels, or to put it more bluntly, bull to keep children safe. Your one student loan, which you won't have to start paying or even look at until you graduate, covers your housing and most of your groceries, so you won't need to learn how to budget for these fundamental human necessities until you graduate, can't get a job, and your parents start charging you for both. No, when I leave college, I'll have a high-paying job. I mean, that's what you're paying for when you go to school. You're buying a degree that makes you qualified for a good job. Well, that's what I've certainly convinced you is true. In reality, the national student loan debt is at $1.2 trillion, which translates to a whole lot of fancy graduates who don't have jobs that can actually pay back the loans we forced them to take out. But it's possible. I mean, both of my parents went to college, and they're not in debt anymore. Don't bother asking them for advice. When they were in college, they could pay for it with a summer job. That'd only be possible today if your summer job was being Elon Musk. The new reality is that it's almost impossible to make student debt disappear, even if you go bankrupt. <laughs> I still don't know how I managed to pull that one off. Can I... Are there loan companies that are better that I can choose from? Hmm, no. <laughs> the government decides what companies you borrow from, and then your debt can actually be sold multiple times to different organizations beyond your control, and they can do whatever they want with your debt. Hey, I just bought your debt. And I'm gifting you the opportunity to put off paying for six whole months. As a side effect, you'll be paying for literally 50 years, but hey, time is money, right? <laughs> I wouldn't know. I didn't go to college, seemed expensive. My dad gave me this job. Bye.
Of course, it's not like this money's wasted. It goes right into the school's endowment, which is used to pay for things like tuition assistance and fellowships, but mostly to play the stock market. In 2014, Yale's $26 billion endowment made almost $500 million in hedge funds and put just under $200 million of that towards its actual students. So your tuition dollars are making America's 1% rich even before you graduate. Hey! You're not so unprepared for the real world after all. Hey, thanks for watching. If you'd like to subscribe to our channel, hit the big C in the middle. Feel free to click the links to the right if you want to watch another cracked video. And don't forget to hit that notification bell at the bottom to be notified when we put out another great video.